Well, and, and good call on getting started before COVID, like getting ahead of everybody else in the country. That was good. Yeah, yeah it didn't help us, but not at all. <laughs> <laughs>
race. Like there's some chance that things happen. Like maybe you'll know something by the end of the year. So it was in the back of my mind, but this was August. This wasn't the end of the year. Like it's still, I definitely that day had no idea. There was this kind of building hope that maybe somehow, some way it would happen. But yeah, that day it was the last thing on my mind. So you were in prison during COVID. Yeah. How was that? Did anything really change during that time or you guys are pretty oh, horrible, like separated in the oh, first place or. I mean, we were separated. So while, while everybody was freaking out on the street, we were just afraid because we had seen all the, you know, walking dead episodes and like, okay, people are locked in there and the guards walk away and you're stuck in prison. We literally had one guy, this is my favorite. He was, he was like a Mr. Fix it. He worked maintenance. He could do everything. And he built like a torch at our welder out of like a, the wire and he ran 240 wire out of his wall and he was like i will literally cut my door off if they lock us in here i will cut my door and i was like all right cool like this is the guy i want on my team um but yeah they i mean they they locked the first couple people up you see him walking around in ppp we were locked in our cells for months with no wreck no anything no normally everybody everything in the prison is done by the people that live there like the cooking the cleaning all of a sudden they're told that the staff has to prepare the food and they don't know how to cook or do anything. So we ate hot dogs and like gummy bears for six months. And that was all they did was buy tens of thousands of hot dogs and gummy bears. It was just insane. Oh. So this was, this was state prison. Mm-hmm. Okay. In Virginia. Virginia. All right. So yeah. how long, so you said you were in for, for 19 years. How long was your original sentence? 32 years. Okay. Now, solid chunk shaved off it was yeah yeah because even with good time in, in virginia and most states that don't have parole you do 85 percent, or what's actually like 86 percent. they call it an 85 percent rule so i would have been out after about 28 or 29 uh and so 19 years was about 10 years early yeah okay um so you you went to prison when you were 19 years old um and what it was just after my 18th birthday. Okay. But yeah. And what year was that? 2002. 2002. Okay. I saw 2002. I just wasn't sure how long that process took for you to. Uh, oh no! To the... be fair, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I was I, I was arrested and I was in jail, and just after my 18th birthday was when I got transferred to prison. You are correct about that. Okay. Um. So, uh, can you talk a, a little bit about um, kind of what happened? I mean, I'm. Most people have seen your TikToks, especially when watching this. But can, just briefly, can mostly for Nick because Nick's sure. never done any research ever for anything. I am a astute, <laughs> educational, and deep researching individual. Researching. <laughs> there it is. See, there, there it is. That's the stupid. What are we? Thing. Fifteen minutes. <laughs> I mean, but the worst part is he's the one who used gubernatorial in the Senate. Yeah, so, like, yeah. I, hey, I know that it's that multiple attorney generals is in fact attorneys general. So, Nick, that's a big oh, wow. word for a five-year-old. <laughs> oh, that's impressive. <laughs> Fun fact: um, Nick and I both have degrees in law enforcement, so that's the only reason he knows that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, I basically started drinking and getting high when I was 16 uh, and did the same dumb stuff that every 16 and 17 year old kid did made mistakes, you know, did and said things I regretted, but for the most part was on that t- typical path. And then when I was 17 and a half, I found cocaine and it was just like a rocket ship. It was every insecurity I'd ever had, every doubt I'd ever had, every fear was just gone. Like all of a sudden I felt like Superman. I felt like I could do anything in the world. And I just kept chasing that. And so whereas some people like, you know, you know, do coke on the weekends. Like I started doing cocaine and I kept doing cocaine until I went to jail. There was no break. There was no day off. There was no, that was your full-time job. That was my full-time job. And literally it was like, what do I have to do to support this? So I sold coke and you know, I ran other hustles. I was working two jobs at the time. I was doing everything I could to make sure I had enough. And it just eventually the demand outsourced that supply. Like I was putting so much up my nose, there was no way I could pay for it through anything I was doing. And so one of my co-defendants, one of the guys I was hanging out with, because I was in this weird gangster fantasy, uh, had worked at a restaurant and said that, oh, you know, the people who run this restaurant are terrible and they only hire undocumented immigrants and they, they don't pay them anything and they take all the cash. And like, so if we steal from them, like we're stealing from bad people, we're actually reclaiming the people's money or some, you know, bullshit that we kind of came up with that allowed us to justify what we were doing. And so we went to break into this house and we, we went once and there were cars there. So we left and then we went back and there were no cars there. So we thought it was empty. So he and I went down in the basement and then uh, my other co-defendant went to the front door and there was a maid there. 
So he ended up what was going to be a breaking and entering turned into a robbery as he stuck a gun in her face and terrified her. And, you know, we tore through the house looking for money that didn't exist and took a bunch of dumb stuff. Like I walked out with a digital camera and a bottle of liquor and I can't even drink whiskey because I got too drunk on it when I was 16. So we basically just caused in this incredible havoc in these people's lives for nothing, for money that didn't exist, for some dream or some fear. It was like the most un-Ocean's Eleven thing you can imagine. <laughs> and then a few days later, um, I had found another guy to front us a bunch more folks. We were partying again. We thought everything was okay. And when I started doing cocaine, the other thing that happened was I was just paranoid. Like I believed that everybody was out to get me. And sure enough, I saw people getting robbed and messed up and, you know, bad things happening. So the first time somebody offered to sell me a gun, I bought it. And I never let that, I mean, I slept with it. I walked around with it. I carried it in my car. I tried to carry it at the damn courthouse one time before I realized that wasn't going to work. <laughs> and I was just constantly with it. So when the two guys who sold it to my buddy who sold it to me said, oh no, we need that back. Like, you know, we've got a problem. I was like, there's no way you're taking my safety back. Like, that's the only thing that keeps me safe. But so they were at his house threatening his pregnant girlfriend and like saying, oh, you're going to you're going to come out here or else or you're going to bring us money or the coke or gun or like you're going to make this right. And and because I was newly high after like a day and a half of, you know, having just a limited stash, I decided to be the hero and get on the phone and said, no, y'all are going to leave or else. And we yelled at each other and went back and forth. And I, I went to meet him. And just you know it had happened before the robbery too like there was this moment before the robbery that i was just like this is a terrible idea what am i doing i need to not do this but at the time i was so used to being with my buddies i was like no i'm being a coward like i need to support my friends i need to you know back them up i can't i can't let them down and what i realized was that the cowardice was not listening to my heart like the thing that i knew to be true i was afraid to listen to instead i went with my buddies and the same thing happened with the shooting i got there and i saw their car and i was just like bro i gotta go like this is a terrible idea somebody's gonna get hurt somebody's gonna get killed what am i doing and so i left and at, right as i pulled out of the parking lot they started their car and they started chasing me and we made it a couple miles down the road and they're like swerving like they're gonna run me off the road and they're shouting and gesturing and uh when the passenger reached around behind him to grab something in my mind he was grabbing a gun so i pulled out that gun and, and shot them both uh and just got really lucky that they lived do you get max sentence for your crimes or so you have we have max statutory and then max sentencing guidelines back then in virginia robbery was 20 to life uh, pretty much there were half the things i was charged with were 20 to life so they could have given me six life sentences uh but the sentencing guidelines that day had called for from eight to 13 years and then they modified them on that day and they went to 10 to 16 years or 16 and a half technically um and then the judge sentenced me to serve 32 years but it wasn't the statutory max uh, because it was technically 138 with 106 suspended, but it was double the high point of the sentencing guidelines. Okay. Was there any plea offer on the table at that point in time or like in back, I mean, back then? Was that something they were doing? I, I had pleaded guilty. That was the thing. I didn't because I was guilty. There was no point in putting people through the hell of like going through a trial and trying to fight on something that I did. Like I didn't I didn't make a statement. That was really what screwed me. Is all three of my co-defendants, the day they were arrested, made a statement, offered to testify, like did everything they could. And one, because I was raised by a dad who was an old gangster, it was like, you don't ever say shit, like you keep your mouth shut, you don't ever rat on your buddies. But also, you know, I was raised by a mom who was a lawyer and she was like, Yeah, don't ever say anything to the cops. So I thought I was being reasonable. Instead, I'm the one who's being dumb because all of a sudden they look like they're cooperating and I'm the bad guy. So when it came down to it, I mean, I remember when the detective came in the room, he was like, honestly, I don't give a shit if you say anything. They already said everything. Like, I don't need you for anything. If you want to try to make it easy on yourself. And I thought he was trying to trick me, but he was actually telling the truth. Um, but so, yeah, I pleaded guilty. And as a part of pleading guilty, they dropped the malicious wounding to unlawful wounding. They dropped two of the gun charges, but there was no deal as far as what the sentence was going to be. Did you did, did, could you not afford an attorney at the time or I, I had a paid attorney that was a crazy thing really? I wish I had stayed with a public defender because really? I I had a, I had a public defender and my mom freaked out and like started going back and forth and ended up hiring an attorney somebody that she knew that she thought was going to be great and I mean he he probably meant well and he actually wrote me a letter apologizing he was like Jesse I've been I've been a lawyer for 35 years and this is like the biggest disappointment I feel like I, I screwed up worse than anything I don't know what else I could do but like this is just this is fundamentally unfair and he actually, when I put in my uh, clemency or my conditional pardon, he wrote a whole brief about like this being the most significant case that he had ever presented, where he felt like justice hadn't been carried. I even had the local Commonwealth attorney, like local prosecutor from my area, wrote a brief in support of my release, saying that what had happened was fundamentally un unfair. So, so is it just a gung ho judge? I mean, basically, but. It's I, I really a lot of people talk crap about the judge, but to me, it's you put a judge in an impossible position. This guy's seen me for like 20 minutes total. And after 20 minutes, he's supposed to determine like whether I'm like redeemable or I'm OK or I'm a bad guy. Like he has no idea who I am. 
And all he has in front of him are a couple things of information like, well, okay, these three guys saved statements and he didn't. So maybe he's the bad guy. I mean, there, there are a dozen different things. And, and I don't think it's reasonable to expect a judge to actually be able to give a good sentence. And in a state that doesn't have parole, we're not actually looking at what somebody does. And that's what drives me crazy. Because I would watch guys come in with five years because they pled down to something or they told on somebody and be in there gangbanging and fighting and stabbing and doing all kinds of crazy stuff and then get after after their five years. And I'd watch somebody else who did one stupid thing and got a 50-year sentence and is in there like two hundred other people and helping people and making art to send to the children's hospital and like being an amazing person and there's no way to review their sentence. So what we're doing is releasing people based on who they were five years ago or 20 years ago, not releasing people based on who they are now and how safe they are to be in society now. And it's just backwards. It doesn't make sense do you think the prison you were in had good rehabilitation like rehabilitation programs and stuff or were you kind of just like once you're there you just kind of you serve your sentence and that's basically all you do the so i was at buckingham the longest i was buckingham for 13 years and they were the best place in the state for a lot of reasons um and it wasn't that they provided services but they would let us provide them like if we went to the principal or we went to the warden, we said, hey, I want to teach a Spanish class. It'd be like, all right, cool. We'll give you a classroom like one day a week. Or if somebody said, hey, I want to do a, a theater thing, the principal would organize and we would have a play. Like, so they would allow us to do it, but it wasn't put on by the prison itself. They were basically like, if you guys can do something, if you guys want to do something, we'll support you, but we're not going to put it in ourselves. And over those 19 years, there was only one meaningful program I ever did. And it was called the Victim Impact Program. And it's based on the restorative justice model. And it was basically asking everybody who had committed a crime to go through the entire experience of crimes. So people who had been harmed by crime, either written or audio or visual testimony, like talking about what, what had happened to them in an assault or in a robbery or in you know, some horrible offense. And then listening to each of those statements. And at the end of the, the I think it was like a 12 week class, we had somebody who had actually been put into a wheelchair by a drunk driver come in and tell her story and have her mother come in and tell the story about getting that phone call and hearing that her daughter was in a, a wheelchair and was never going to walk again and they weren't sure she was going to live. And it was one of the most powerful things I've ever experienced. And that to me was like transformative. That meant something. But every other anger management class taught by an overworked, angry counselor who didn't want to be there and told us it was stupid anyways, like, yeah, that wouldn't do anything. But yeah, that was the one class that really made it. So you mentioned that you had found cocaine when you were uh before you went to prison and um i doing normal 16 year old stupid stupid shit of drinking getting high and everything what what was your relationship with just substances and in general like during your sentencing and then since being released how have you what how difficult was it to kind of get off the cocaine and just i mean what's your relationship with them now <laughs> yeah so i mean it, it was easy to get off cocaine because you could get all kinds of stuff in the jail but you couldn't get coke so i had a three-day detox where they just locked me in the cell and i didn't leave and that was it i just kind of went through everything i was going through i was miserable i was shaken you know and cocaine isn't a physical addiction which i guess is a positive it's just purely a mental one but it's a motherfucker like it's that's the worst withdrawal i've ever experienced in my life um and then after that, yeah, I mean, I remember we made wine the first first pot I was in. We like took all the fruit back and we got some Charlie Ranchers. And we made really terrible toilet wine and we, you know, that was available. And there were drugs in prison. And I had this thing where I went back and forth. And finally, in 2016, I reached a breaking point where I was just like, I can't keep doing this. I was in this really crazy, unhealthy, long distance relationship. I was popping pills every day to get up. I was popping pills every night to go to sleep. I was just in a miserable place. And I was like, I have to I have to stop this. And so I, I stopped everything. I like joined a recovery program. I really kind of turned my life around. I was like, this is going to be my focus. And I've changed my perspective on it since then. Because back then, I really kind of bought into the Kool-Aid of the, the doctrine of this is what we have to do. But after that, I mean, I, I got a psych degree while I was inside. I worked with a bunch of counselors. What I realized is like I was running things from my or from things my whole life. And that stopping using substances wasn't changing the fact that I was running from things. I was just finding new ways to run from things. And when I actually worked and started to address the trauma that I experienced, where I actually worked to try to change the way that I related to myself or related to other people or the way I ran away from uncomfortable feelings. And a big part of this was meditation. <clears throat> I no longer felt the need for this kind of like really hard line about like, oh, you can't drink or you can't get high or you can't do whatever. And I, I generally don't talk about it because I don't want people to think that something's okay because there's some people I don't think should ever have a drink. And I've got a lot of kids who follow my TikTok. And so I will, you know, if I was going to drink or get high, I would never do it on a page. I would never let anybody see that because I don't think it's good to set that example. 
But at the same time, I'll tell people if they, if they want to stop, I'll say, Hey, I'll help you in stopping. Like when I work with guys getting out of jail, they'd say, hey, I'm trying to get sober. I was like, look, I'll take you to a meeting. I'll introduce you to some people. How can we help you? If somebody else says, well, I want to stop this, but not that I'll support them. In it. I mean, I believe in harm reduction. I got Narcan in my bathroom and I carry it everywhere I go because sometimes I go into the community and we'll find people overdosing. We'll be able to, you know, basically revive somebody who otherwise wouldn't be revived. And I don't believe in judging people for that or telling them they're wrong because everybody's on their own path. Are you still based in Virginia? Yeah, I still live in Charlottesville, Virginia. Okay. Yeah, because um, you're, you're on, you just got off, I can't remember which way it goes. You just got off like parole or probation. You're on like the other one now or something like as of. Yeah, I have a really weird situation because we, we abolished parole in Virginia in 1995. But because of my conditional pardon, one of the conditions was three years of supervised release under the parole board. So I'm basically on parole, even though nobody under the age of 60 is. Um, but I, I also was told I had to do the two years of probation for my original sentence, and that's what I just got off of. So that had a few more restrictions and things I wasn't allowed to do. But basically, it's the same situation where I have to check in once a month on my phone. I have to get permission to travel. I have to report if I move somewhere. I have to get permission to move somewhere. Just the little kind of limitations. But for the most part, I'm just I'm just out here waiting another year because August 16th, the next year, I'm off paper for good. And I can travel internationally. I can do other things. And, and basically, every, every limitation will be lifted. Do you know what the thought process was to abolish parole in Virginia? So it was it was actually a national thing. It was part of the Truth and Sentencing Act in 1994, 1995. And nationally, they were saying that, hey, this isn't fair to victims of crime. We need to get rid of parole because people are getting out before we're telling them we're getting out. If they're getting an 80 year sentence, getting parole after 20, that's not fair. And I think that was a valid point. But the evidence has been disastrous, like what it's done to systems, the cost. I mean, the, the rate of incarceration has gone up like 600 percent with per capita increases since the 1970s like we've done nothing but lock more people up and society isn't safer like we've done nothing to address public safety and parole actually provides an alternative most of the states that abolish parole as part of the truth and sentencing have then gone back to having it but virginia isn't i mean we're just kind of hard-headed and say no like we think this is good and everybody massages their numbers as far as statistics so virginia will be like we have the second lowest recidivism rate in the country it's like yeah if you ignore all those people who go back to prison after six months or after two years or after three years but like if you look at this one specific metric it looks really good but the way they do that is they basically lock people up for a really long time they give an 18 year old kid a 40-year sentence and they're like well he ain't gonna reoffend when he's 56 like we know we'll be okay and it's just it's disastrous and what it does to families and communities and what it does to taxpayers and budgets and the doc is one of the biggest budgets in virginia uh i i've seen the videos where uh where you talk about after well, like, while you were in the process of getting out and pass giving items to friends and stuff and then after uh afterwards getting picked up being taken to your girlfriend at the time and just kind of wondering like how is how is living like that kind of social life in prison of making making friends and getting a girlfriend on the outside and like how does how does that all kind of work in the system the girlfriend on the outside thing is surprisingly common really? probably a quarter of the guys in there have a girlfriend a lot of them have girlfriends in other countries i mean it's for people who were emotionally available but not physically or it's a lot of times it's women who have experienced abuse or women who have personality disorders and can't actually be in physical relationships or there's there's it's a really kind of perfect fit because you get a guy who has all the time in the world to give you his time and attention but you don't have to worry about actually living with him and vice versa mm -hmm. Um, I actually, I was in a that kind of long, crazy, toxic relationship with a woman who was previously married to a guy in prison before me, and their marriage was great while he was in prison. And as soon as she got out, or as soon as he got out, they broke up because they couldn't live together. And that's a pretty common thing. Um, but as far as making friends, I mean, when I first went in, I was young and stupid, and I was scared. Everybody told me, "Hey, if anybody steps in your space, you swing first. If this happens, you make sure you swing first. So I put myself in a lot of really dumb situations. And I think the people that I would have wanted to be friends with saw that and just kind of kept me at arm's length. But over the next couple of years, as I grew up and I matured and I started doing better things, they were willing to kind of let me into their circle and, and kind of mentor me and say, hey, you don't have to be such a hard headed kid like you're going to be OK. Um, and I met people, you know, doing the same thing we do in the world. I met people at work. I met people playing soccer or on the way pile or I met people I like to talk to about books or sports in the chow hall. I just ended up meeting people that I could connect with. And it wasn't the same as out here. I, I didn't have necessarily the same level of friendship or level of connection. But the bond that happened by going through things together and having to have one another, I mean, one another's backs in some really difficult situations is really hard to describe. Because there are guys who I, I don't know that I really have any desire to talk to now, but I trust in a way that 
I wouldn't probably trust anybody on the outside. And so it's a weird kind of different friendship or weird kind of different kind of almost like partnership and like knowing you have each other's backs. So you talked about like at work and so did, were, did, were you in a work program while you were in prison? Or? <clears throat> no. So we just every institution, like I said, everything in the institution is done by people who live there. So I worked in the factory making woodshop stuff. I worked as a tutor. I worked as a mentor. I worked uh, maintenance. I worked in the law library. We just did a bunch of different jobs. Uh, and so each of those jobs was some element of keeping the prison running. Um, where I was in Virginia, one of my other big complaints is like, if I had done that entire 32 year sentence, the day before the end of my sentence, I would not be allowed to go to a level one or a work center. I'd be considered too dangerous because I had violent charges, but the next day they would just let me out of the world. So for anybody with violent charges, there's no step down. You go from a prison to the street. There's no like halfway house. There's no partway. There's no anything. They literally just take you from a major prison to the street. And so there is no work release. There is no, you know, stepping down and getting used to the world. So did you change jobs because you wanted to, or did they kind of like rotate you guys in and out of stuff or was it all completely on what you wanted to do? I mean, jobs were incredibly competitive. You had, you know, at one place it was like 600 jobs for 1200 people at the other place it was like 350. So if you got a job, you didn't want to get rid of it. But for me, it, it was worth it to me because I didn't know what my future was going to be. And somebody had told me early on that like, it's better to have options and plans. So I wanted to have every option in front of me. So I wanted to work maintenance so I could become a, a journeyman electrician. I wanted to learn how to do electronics and low voltage stuff. I wanted to work in the law library because I figured maybe one day I'd be a paralegal. I wanted to work in the factory because I wanted to learn how to do CNC and run CAD programming. So I did it. I looked at everything as like an opportunity for free training. Like I didn't want to work cleaning showers. I did when that was the only job I could get because I needed the money. But I wanted to always be in a job that gave me some kind of option or gave me some kind of position to do something. And I wouldn't leave until either I had learned everything I had learned in that position or something that provided more opportunity showed up. So since you've since you've been out, um, what what things have surprised you about? how the world has changed and evolved since since you had last uh been uh been out for, or since before you went to prison and what things have kind of not changed or you kind of expected i mean i think a lot has changed technology is the big one like i said we didn't have facebook or you know i think we had google or amazon only sold books like we had the beginnings of things when i went in but none of it was what it is now. And now the computer, the phone that I have is more powerful than the computer I, you know, I had at school when I got locked up. Uh, so it's just, it's a different world as far as that. Um, one of the things that, that surprised me is that while I was inside, I felt like a big fish in a small pond. I felt like, all right, I'm smart for in here, or like I can help people for in here, or I can do a good job for in here. But once I get into the world, I'm going to be so outmatched. Like everybody's going to be so much smarter and have their stuff together so much more than me. And I remember getting out and realizing that just as many people out here were a shit show as in prison. And that really surprised me because I was like, man, how did you like, how did you guys manage? How did you guys like, get along? Um, and so that was, I guess, a huge relief because I really did. I thought I was going to get out and I was just going to like struggle to get by in every basic thing. And I, I didn't know what to expect. And so being able to find a place where I could actually have something to share because my perspective is, is unique or because of the, the things I had to learn and things that I had to become adaptable around inside, that really surprised me. Um, you know, I was obviously negatively surprised at how, how divided everybody is. I mean, I remember going in and like, you, there were people that I would talk to who were like Republicans and Democrats and they disagreed and still gave each other a hug at the end of the day. And I come out and it feels like we're in the middle of this COVID like political war, like we're ready for another civil war. And that felt horrible. I mean, I remember literally going to places where I would see people like sitting on the opposite side of the room because they didn't like each other, some political or some, you know, whatever view. And I thought that was ridiculous. Like I didn't, I didn't want to live, um, Otherwise, yeah, I mean, I think I was just also surprised at the pace of life because, you know, inside I had a really set routine. I meditated every morning, I read every day, I exercised, and then I get out to the world and I'm like, holy shit, like I'm, I'm, my day is jammed full, just responding to comments on social media and I'm packed. And, and I wasn't prepared for the pace and for the options uh, because in prison, you, you have a set schedule, you don't have to make a lot of choices. And out here in the world, it's like you have one choice after another and unlimited options. And that's amazing. And it's also overwhelming. Oh, yeah, it's been a shit show out here. Yeah. Well, like, is it like, I feel like a lot of people were closer right before you went into because like 9-11 was only like a year and a half ish, like out from that. And like that drew people together. And now all we do is yell Trump or Biden. Like it's, it's insane. Like how far away we've stepped from, from being a unit and have to pick sides. Yeah. Now. We, we abandoned that Very unity true. train real quick. Yeah. 
Well, and people complain about TSA and like I've even complained a little bit, but I remember the last time I flew was right before I went to prison. And then when I got out, the first time I got on a plane last year, I was like, man, I don't, this is going to be horrible. And I'm like checking things and people are looking at me like I'm crazy. They just waved me through. I was like, wait, they're not going to like pull me aside and grab my junk. And like, it just, it surprised me because my first experience or my last experience had been right when things were as locked down as they could possibly be. I was one of those people that got grabbed uh, when I was, what, this was probably 2011 so i was like 13. <laughs> you're also culturally ambiguous yeah. <laughs> they, they, they and this is my, america that makes we, sense <laughs> we were flying out of tampa and they thought my mom and i were illegals <laughs> so just looking at our backgrounds right now do you ever feel the needs to have crap like what like obviously like being in pr- i'm talking about like being in prison like Oh, just you, having shit? Yeah, just having stuff around. Like, I'm looking at our backgrounds, and I'm like, all three of our houses are filled with sh- shit that we don't need. Are you very minimalist about what you have now? And do you think that's from being in prison? Or uh, do you yeah. splurge on anything? I mean, that's been a struggle. Uh, you know, when I moved into this apartment, I literally had a, not a mattress, but a mattress topper, mm-hmm. and that was it. I moved in, and that was it. Um and I struggled with whether to get things because I was like, man, how, literally my mindset was, yo, if they if they pack me up for transfer, how am I going to move stuff if I have stuff? And obviously nobody's packing me up for transfer, but it was like, well, what if I do move? What, what if this happens? And I really struggled with getting comfortable. And I have a mentor who was, she was like, Jesse, I'm going to convince you to get a bed. Like, that's my only goal. I'm going to convince you to get a bed. And after a couple of months, I remember she did. Like, oh, it's really nice to have a bed. And so I've started amassing more things, but yeah, I mean, for the most part, I don't, I don't want a lot of stuff. Like, I don't want a lot of clothes. I don't want a lot of things. I like having nice things. Like, I, until I wreck my motorcycle, I had a nice motorcycle. I really like that. But for the most part, I, yeah, I, I kind of focus on quality rather than quantity. And I'll throw stuff away, or usually I just take it to Goodwill um, because I don't want to, I don't want to have stuff around that feels like it's kind of like gumming up my space. And I mean, I even struggle. Like, I had people send me a couple pieces of art, and I haven't hung them up because to me, it's weird. It's like, well, I'm going to move out of the apartment next year, and I'm going to have to like take all the stuff down and, and plaster the walls, and like, why even do that? And so, I do have this this like profound sense of impermanence and like weird scarcity uh, that I'm still struggling to adjust to. What's the uh, what's your biggest splurge since since you've been out of prison? Well, it is and it isn't. But so a lot of Tesla, but. It wasn't a splurge, but it was like I wanted one more than anything. But so I, I had this old pickup truck and that was what I was driving. Somebody T-boned me and I got an insurance settlement. I was going to buy the same truck and I literally could not find it. I get they gave me like eleven thousand dollar settlement for a truck that was like probably worth eight thousand because they were marked up. And I couldn't find that same truck for anything less than like fifteen or sixteen thousand. Just the market was insane. There was no way to buy it. And it was just an old two wheel drive Toyota truck. So I looked around and I found a really good interest rate on a new Subaru. And I was like, all right, this is reliable. This is safe. Like, let me just buy this. But I didn't, I didn't like it. Like, I just, it, it wasn't fast. It wasn't fun. I didn't like it. So I actually ended up finding a, a Model 3 in a dealership. And I just traded my Subaru in for it. It's basically a straight trade. But to me, that was huge because it was like, I want this car. I want this, like, I want to have this experience. But this doesn't feel responsible. And again, my mentor and other people talked me into it. They're like, dude, just do it. Like, what's the worst that happens? Like, you, you have to pay for it? Like, what? who cares? Uh, but in my mind, just taking a step like that was was crazy. Like, I thought it was absolutely insane to get a car that I probably shouldn't afford or probably couldn't afford or probably shouldn't have. And instead, I should be putting that money into like a savings account or into, into the stock market or into something because I'm constantly being afraid that I'm going to run out of money or not be able to pay the bills or something's going to happen. So How is the Tesla? <laughs> I love it. It's amazing. <laughs> Literally, it like... The week after I got it, I, I drove up to Pennsylvania to help a friend of mine, and it drove me to Pennsylvania. And I was like, bro, that's that's it. And the crazy thing is, like, it's a 2018. It's a five-year-old car, and the only thing they've changed in the last five years is the color of the door handles and the trim. Like, the car is identical to all the post-2018 models. So people are paying, you know, $10,000, $20,000 more for one that's later, and it's like, no, this is cool. Like, it, it still drives me. I'm good. Uh, What's your – what's the dumbest but your f- – most favorite thing about the tesla like do you have like your horn sounds like like a clown nose or something like what's the stupidest thing that you do with your tesla tesla you can you can get it with the boost package which makes it like 457 horsepower and i paid for the boost package and it was like there's no reason to have a car with 457 <laughs> horsepower yeah but it is my favorite thing 
because other than motorcycles, uh, I have pulled up to the line next to Corvettes and Camaros and everything else. I'm like, hey, buddy, you want to go? And they laugh at me. And then I'm like three car lengths ahead of them. They're angry and they're <laughs> flicking me off when they drive by. And so that is a wholly irresponsible thing. But at the same time, I absolutely love it. So going into kind of your your the technical side of your social media ness um uh this just interests me so i have a film degree so i kind of i really enjoy kind of the nitty-gritty behind the scenes stuff of making content um what is your normal like work day look like when you're making videos or do you just make videos willy-nilly or like how does that work yeah. It's pretty much, I mean, every now and then I'll have something that I think is really important or something related to like legislation or advocacy that I, I really want to focus on. Part is, I mean, I, I run a nonprofit. So other than being at home right now where I'm, I'm laid up, I'm walking to meetings, I'm walking to fundraising events, I'm walking to, you know, coordinations with other things. I'm going to the juvenile center, I'm going to the jail, I'm going to DOC. So what I usually do is uh, I've got a routine where I get up in the morning and there's a co-working space downtown that I really like. And so I walk down there and from eight to nine o'clock, if I don't have meetings, I talk to the staff. I just sit there and drink coffee and talk to the staff because they're my favorite people in town. So on the walk down, which is about 10 or 15 minutes in the walk back, I try to make my first couple of videos. And I tried, I don't know why I came up with this idea, but somebody told me if you make four to six videos, it'll help. And so for a year and a half, I made four to six videos a day, every single day. Um, and I still try to keep up kind of quantity, but it depends. Um, because a lot of times, like there were, I, I would get stuck on different like plateaus. Like at, at one point it was like 500,000 and like, I just didn't get any more. And then that jumped over one video to like 700,000. And then that was stuck and that jumped to like 900,000 and that jumped to like 1.1 million. And so each time that happens, there's a whole new audience that doesn't know some of the other stories. So I try to kind of recap old stories, but also generally I try to address like, I try to find a topic that I can talk about that will bring people in that may be sensational or maybe interesting and then try to draw something out of it because I want it to be an alien thing that people don't know about because they haven't been there, but I also want it to be relatable. I want to understand that we're all looking for the same kind of connection and security and experience and safety. And once people realize that, I think it humanizes people who are incarcerated and humanizes people who are getting out because that's my whole goal. It's not to, to you know be big on social media. It's to change the way we look at corrections and change the way we look at the idea of punishment and recognize that punishing people doesn't work. Like sitting a kid in the corner without telling him what he did wrong or telling him what he can do differently or helping him build new skills is not gonna make him do better. It's just gonna make the kid angry or make the kid resentful or make the kid frustrated. And that's essentially what we do in many schools and it's also what we do in our correctional system. And I would love to see us actually say, hey, like you're a traumatized kid who has really bad skills. Like we need to remove you from society right now because you're not safe, but we're gonna teach you new skills. We're gonna help you like heal those wounds. We're gonna help you live a different life. And so often, especially when I go to the juvenile center, like these kids don't see that. Like all they see is going back to the same home in the same neighborhood that led them there in the first place and never having anybody to believe them and never give them a chance. And I think if we just do that, we're gonna have a whole lot more success stories. So when you got out, was there one specific thing that you really wanted to do like right away that you were like oh man that's have sex yeah that adds up <laughs> okay. immediately okay yeah okay <laughs> all right and then what was the second thing <laughs> have sex again probably but uh, <laughs> yeah i mean i did that too um I don't know that it was there. I mean, yeah, I wanted to eat like, and I couldn't eat for the whole first night. I just, I was so full of adrenaline and so sick that you know, even trying to eat, chew made me feel sick. Um, one of the things I wanted, I really wanted to swim like, cause I hadn't been able to be in a body of water in all those years. I hadn't been able to take a bath. I hadn't been able to like, and for some reason it took me months. And I remember when I finally did, I remember the first time I went swimming at this lake at a national park. And well, first of all, I was so out of shape. Like I was on the swim team when I was a kid, like I was in good shape. And I made it like halfway across that lake and thought I was going to die. I was like <laughs> struggling and trying to figure out what to do. But the I, the feeling of like being immersed in water and I've since like jumped in every ocean and every river and every lake I've been to, like all over the country. And that has been really amazing because I just, I miss that. There's something almost like spiritual about being immersed in water. What's been your favorite new experience or favorite foods that you've enjoyed? since being free sex <laughs> yeah sex pussy um yeah. sex again pussy's great amazing. dish <laughs> but i had a i had a friend on the inside who told like wrote me these long letters about how much i was going to like korean barbecue and i remember thinking like she must be crazy like barbecue's barbecue there's no way this is going to be that special 
And then I actually went up to, uh, it was one of the trips I took to, to Pennsylvania. I went with two buddies from prison to a Korean barbecue place. And we like, I think it was like $40 a person or 30. Like we ate so much more than the value of whatever they charged us. We ate for an hour and a half. And we were so sick that we had to get back on the road and I actually went and slept in the truck. But it, I was like, this is amazing. This is the best experience. Like you just bring me all the meat that I want. I get to cook it and eat it. And I have a dozen different sauces and dipping and I mean, I felt like you ever see a little kid who sees like something new and their eyes are white. I felt like that for an hour and a half. Like that was one of the most incredible that experiences. Experience with sushi. Um, getting that's that's our all you can eat sushi is always a rough time. <laughs> oh, I, I bet afterward too. Jesus, I can't imagine. Have you? Uh, well, my computer froze. That's fine. Not important. You're only the one recording. What, you you said a, that uh, in a year uh, you'll be able to travel internationally. Where are you looking looking to go? Um, so I have a really good friend in Ireland that I want to meet, but there are a lot of issues around Ireland, uh, the UK, and and uh, the EU as far as entry for people who have a criminal record that you have to get a visa and you might be denied. So ideally, I would go to Iceland and Scotland and then Ireland, because I really Iceland's just one of the most beautiful places on the planet. Scotland's one of those places where people I've talked to people from the Middle East. I've talked to people from America, from Asia. Everybody, for whatever reason, is Scotland is the most beautiful place. And then Ireland is just to see my buddy like that's that's just to see him. So we may end up meeting in, in Iceland or may end up meeting in Scotland, depending on what all the entry limitations are. And then before my dad died, he expatriated and lived in Costa Rica. Uh, and I want to go down and see the little farm and the little uh, area that he had built down there. So at one point, I'd love to go to Costa Rica. Um, so the question I have before my everything froze on me, um, have you, I don't exactly know what the type of restaurant's called, but have you been to one of those uh, Japanese restaurants where they cook in front of you? Yeah. The hibachi. Like that's. That's an experience Herbachi, of my life. Right? That yeah. That's what he yeah. just said. Yes. No, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. You I'm sorry. I didn't hear it. Disgrace. I actually did that like three weeks ago or a month ago for the first time since I've been out. And we got like, we got the non enthusiastic oh. cook. You know, the guy's like, yeah. he's super in, and he's flipping stuff. This guy was like, hey, hey, here's your food. Like, he clearly <laughs> didn't want to be there. He looked about half drunk. Like, it wasn't the show I remember from a kid, but uh, it, it was good. The food was good. Yeah. I love those places. Um, so you would you mentioned your uh your dad um and you said he was a like a gangster and your mom was a lawyer how does that happen yeah, i mean they... that seems like people who shouldn't like each other <laughs> so they met i mean they met because they were okay. both alcoholics like they didn't meet because of their and he i mean at that point he was still doing some stuff but he was mostly at that point running a landscaping company and doing substance abuse work like my dad was literally leading substance abuse groups going in the bathroom shooting cocaine and coming out and leading substance abuse groups so he was definitely saying you know do what i do and not what i or do what i say and not what i do um but they connected because they were they were drunks like that that was their connection um and then they both got sober when i was young and, and things kind of changed but when when they stopped drinking they realized they didn't really like each other anymore they realized they had nothing in common because they lived very different lives and had very different views. Was there um, anyone in prison that like you kind of formed a connection with that like you didn't quite know like what their like sentence was at that time, but then you found out and you're like, oh wow, I would never would have guessed that's what they were in here for. Uh, yeah. So when I first went into Virginia, there was this this rule that like you don't ask and you don't tell. Like nobody talked about their time or nobody talked about their sentence. Nobody talked about what their crime was. And it was easier that way. Um, and that that's changed over probably the last 10 years where people start pulling paperwork and doing doing like background checks, essentially. Um, so there were a lot of people that I didn't know for years. And when I started working in the law library. There was actually one guy who I didn't really like, but like I was friendly with and I thought he was a decent enough guy. And I read and he had just committed this heinous, heinous sex crime. And I just remember when I found out, it was just like, oh, my God, like it just it, it I, I could never unsee the stuff that I read and I could never see him in the same light. And I really try to be non-judgmental. I really try to judge somebody not by who they were or what they did, but who they are now. But there was something about that that was just so heinous that I just I could never see. So inmates way. can just pull each other's files just on a whim. You're not supposed to. So with, with, when it first started, it used to be you could literally just have somebody go to the website. So you would, you would get on the phone, you say, hey, sis, look up so-and-so, and it would give you the whole list on the website. 
when they had guys getting stabbed and extorted and things, they, they took it off the website. But you have like systems, you essentially have the guys who run in the gangs or guys who run in other things to get really good at this or their, their family member gets really good at this. So they'll, they'll give a list of 10 names. They'll say, hey, I need you to pull all this paperwork. And they'll either go to the county where they came from because you can usually find that information online or go to find an old article or there, there are ways to find that information out. But yeah, it's, it's not done internally. Sometimes the counselors or the staff, if they really don't like somebody, will let people know. Like they'll let that paperwork just kind of come out so that everybody can see. But generally it's people on the outside. That doesn't sound corrupted at all. <laughs> <laughs> um and i saw i it, i think you just posted it today if not very recently um you talked on tiktok about this uh this guy who was wrongfully sentenced uh for uh having sex with uh a child and the child was saying that she he never did it and he just finally got released after like 28 years i think it was it was like 29 years down in Louisiana, of all places, which is not a system you want to be in. Um, a sex charge. I don't know how that dude survived. Especially being like being put in there for having sex with a child. Like, how many, yeah. how many people did do you know or did you know in the system that really didn't do the crime and uh, were in similar situations? Maybe not that extreme, but having that happen to them. Yeah. I mean, while I was in, there were two really big name cases where people were exonerated while they were in there. One, it was DNA evidence. He'd been saying from day one that he hadn't done it. Uh, there was another guy that was, I think the year, actually, no, he was, he, it happened when I was in the jail, but he was in DOC. He'd been down for like 25 years. The other guy had been down for 30 years. And then there was a guy from my area who was this guy with learning disabilities, who was just not in a very good position, who they literally locked in the room for 24 hours. And then finally at the end said, hey, if you just tell us you did it, like, we'll let you go home. He was like, okay, I did it. And they used that to convict him. And 12 years later, after the people who had actually committed the crimes had been saying over and over that he didn't do it, they finally exonerated him. And there were so many cases like that. And in situations, though, where somebody isn't willing to take the admission or somebody, there's no DNA to exonerate him, those guys are just staying stuck in there. There's a, a guy who, it's weird because like we were kind of buddies. I didn't really like him, but I think he's a good guy. We just didn't really vibe. Um, I fully believe he's innocent. He's got a 40-year sentence. I mean, he's probably going to die in prison because of something I don't believe that he did. And I've met trying to think i'd say maybe out of ten thousand people i met in the system over 19 years i'd say probably i don't know 500 of them were innocent um and some of those were interesting like i remember there was a guy named lynn who I actually really liked because he was like man he would tell everybody i didn't commit the murder i'm in here for like i 100 am innocent everybody in the neighborhood knows i'm innocent like everybody knows i didn't do it he's like man but i did dirt like i took people's lives i understand why i'm in prison and i don't complain about it and he actually ended up making parole on that, which I thought was bizarre because normally the requirement is that like you have to admit guilt and you know admit responsibility and show remorse for your crime. And even to the parole board, he was like, no, nah, I didn't do it. Like I killed somebody else, but I didn't kill this guy. I remember thinking that was a bizarre statement, but I guess in a way it's kind of radical honesty. And they ended up paroling him because he was sentenced to 495. So, huh. so um, movie, prison movie would you say is most accurate to prison and which is the one that just makes is a clown show and is obviously not we'll even close we'll include tv like orange is new black in this yeah i like to think that uh, um that law-abiding citizen is pretty close to the actual <laughs> criminal justice system yeah absolutely um i i think that uh shawshank redemption is probably the closest to accurate and not necessarily the details, because every system and every state and everything's going to be different. But the way you see, you know, the kind of weird casual humor and then just absolute horrible like sexual assault or physical assault or loss of life. And then back to just this humdrum kind of daily thing, because 99 percent of life in prison is not scary or exciting or anything. It's just boring. Like it's whatever you make it. But there are those moments of explosive, horrifying, whatever. And I thought that movie did a really good job of capturing the fact that most of your time is not spent in abject terror or, you know, fighting for your life. But there are moments where you are. And the problem with it is that you really never know when those moments are going to come. So you're kind of like constantly in the stasis waiting for the other shoe to drop. And I would say things like Prison Break or I, I, I don't watch prison movies. Like that's one of the few things that triggers me. I remember trying to watch one a couple of weeks ago. I got like 10 minutes and I was like, I'm going to bed. Like, I'll see you all later. I, I can't do this because it's still that definitely still kind of like brings up some emotions and feelings for me that I'm not comfortable with. But yeah, any of the ones where it's just it's constant craziness are not really accurate. Um, but again, every system's different. Like all my buddies from California. Yeah, this the things they had to do with mandatory yard and race politics. And like that was real out there. That wasn't real in Virginia. What's our things that just the general population or 
think or movies and TV shows like say happen all the time? Like what things are actually happening and what things aren't really as big of a deal or aren't really happening? Like um, the come up to the biggest guy and punch him your first day. Like these weird things that we all hear in just our lives. Like, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really? terrible idea. I, I don't think I ever saw anybody. The closest thing I can ever say that I saw to that is we had a guy who got there who I don't even know why he did, but he went up to this whole group of bloods and he was like, yo, y'all are all going to rep my set or else. And that's like the worst thing you could possibly do. And I literally remember them dragging his body off the yard where they had beaten him so bad that they couldn't like get him onto the stretcher. Like, no, we just got to drag him inside and get him away from these guys. Um, so yeah, the, the times that guys tried to show up and like show how much of a badass they were, that never worked out well. And I mean, he was a really big guy. It just wasn't big <laughs> enough. Um, <clears throat> the sexual assault thing, like it happened, but more often I saw it happen in like relationships or in like essentially domestic violence rather than just like grabbing somebody in the shower. There were a few times that that happened over the years, but it was it was exceedingly rare. And it was usually something where somebody had kind of opened that door or played around or done something. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think otherwise the idea that you're just in a place that isn't particularly great where people are fighting over limited resources uh, and then, you know, add things like the lack of air conditioning. So it's miserably hot or other conditions that make people really upset that, yeah, I mean, we, we would just feel when the tension was coming. We knew every summer there were going to be way more fights and way more issues. We knew every winter, you better hope you're in a pod where they don't, you know, forget to turn the heat on. Just little things like that. Um, I don't know. Yeah. And dropping the soap. Yeah. I never once saw somebody who dropped the soap. There was this old guy. Uh, he was he was one of those characters. <clears throat> I think that's one of the things maybe Shawshank and the other movies do really well is they, they let you know that they're like characters in prison you'll always remember. And he used to always go in the shower and be like, oops, I dropped the soap. I really wish somebody would come help me pick it up. And yeah, I mean, like he was desperate to get <laughs> fucked and nobody would fuck it. So like, you, you never know. Damn um, bad. <laughs> uh, we'll, uh, we'll wrap up uh, here in a couple questions, but uh, what's what was your favorite moment on the inside that kind of just brought levity to the whole made you kind of for lack of a better term forget that you were in prison like i mean there were there were some funny moments but i think the favorite for me was so one of the problems about prison is you never get to see the sky uh or at least at night because you know when you walk out during the day like sure you can look up but you have to walk from building to building but at night they've either got these big floodlights on or you're locked inside so i never got to see the stars and there was one night where they called us out and we had to do basically bust concrete for 12 hours. One of the sidewalks was falling down because they had to put rebar in. So we had to bust it and pour more concrete. And because I was on maintenance, I was voluntold that that's what I was going to do. And I mean, I was pissed. I wasn't looking forward to busting concrete for 12 hours. It sounded horrible, but I was out there with a group of guys that I really liked. Like my buddy who I picked up from prison last year and another guy who was local. And so we went out and we just swung a hammer all night long. And then at midnight, we got to take a break. And I remember, so we're sitting out there and where we were sitting, it was one of the few areas you didn't have a collection of the big bright lights. And so we were sitting with our back to the cart that we had all the tools on. I was looking up and I was like, bro, I can see the stars. And I looked over and the other guy said the same thing. We had tears in our eyes because even though it was this horrible situation, I didn't want to be in, I didn't want to be doing manual labor. It had given me the opportunity to be somewhere and do something that I had never been able to do for the past, like. 13 or 14 years and it just felt absolutely beautiful and free and he felt the same way and i mean that was that was one of my favorite moments well it's been a great time uh jesse uh can you tell us a, just where people can find you a little bit about uh the second chance for foundation and just how kind of just a pitch to help people out sure so you can look me up by my name jesse crossan j-e-s-s-e-c-r-o-s-s-o-n or second chancer second underscore chancer on tiktok and instagram and youtube and facebook uh second chancer foundation is second hyphen chancer.org we're working to change the narrative around incarceration and reentry, as well as provide opportunities and services for those getting out because everybody's safer when people getting out have a chance to turn their lives around and don't feel kind of compelled or pushed back into that old life uh, we're actually we're doing a community event next month i'm really excited about uh, we're doing a leadership summit monthly at the juvenile center we're working with cisco systems to do a job training job placement program for people leaving incarceration we're trying to do everything we can to leverage the, the kind of opportunities and the, the experiences we have to, to benefit other people so that we can have a whole lot more success stories awesome 